This morning, I have an easy morning. I led a song, and now I'm going to introduce my friend, and then I'm kind of done for the morning. And then we eat, so I feel good about it. Greg Wren, as you know, is the pastor of Saints Chapel in Mesquite, Texas. He is also the presiding elder of the conference down in Dallas that I attend each year. And when he was here last, he stood up here, the big mountain of a man that he is, and proclaimed that he was my twin. And we went to dinner last night, and it turns out we're still twins on so many different levels, on uh, theological levels, but also just on friendship levels, and that's good. So Greg is going to be preaching to us this morning. That would be Elder Wren to the rest of you. But Greg is going to be speaking this morning. And uh, every time that I hear him speak, I'm always pleased because he not only knows the doctrines of grace that we hold dear, but he also knows the Christ that we hold dear. And he preaches about that Christ. So I'm anxious to hear what he has for us this morning. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus.
Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, when he experienced this event, didn't know what awaited him. He didn't know that he would write a very large portion of the Old Testament. He didn't know that he would write more about the Messiah than any other prophet. He didn't know he would marry a prophetess. He didn't know that he would have to deal with <coughs> godless kings, and he didn't know that, at least according to tradition, he would be sawn in half by one of those kings. And remember that King Isaiah was actually a very, very good king. King Isaiah had craftsmen who built engines of war that, that defended the cities of Judah until one day he forgot who he was and decided that he should go into the temple and offer incense. He was opposed by 81 priests who said, you can't do this. And he defied them. I'm the king. I can do what I want. He was struck with leprosy right there in the temple and had to live in a small house outside the city instead of in his palace because God does not tolerate blatant sin, particularly on the part of his leaders. And so Isaiah writes, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Now this is not the voice of God. This is the voice of the seraphim, God's creations. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. The King James says, I am undone. He knew how vast was the difference between himself, a sinful creature, and that holy God of whom some of his creatures spend their days and nights simply repeating, Holy, holy, holy. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. 
and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Good morning. Good morning. It's another day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I am rejoicing. And I am glad in it. It is truly a blessing to be here this morning, to be with the good friend of mine, Jim McClarty, and the family, the GCA family. It's good to see y'all again. And I've enjoyed my stay here and my fellowship with Elder McClarty, and I look forward to the fellowship with you all after service. I didn't express to Jim or the brother here what I was going to preach about, uh, but I'm glad that the Lord led him to read that scripture and give you a little background on that because it cuts down on my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> With that said in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I bring you greetings from the Saints Chapel in Mesquite, Texas. And I believe Jim liked to call us GCA West <laughs> because our order of service, uh, our principles and ways we go about doing things pretty much alike. And so we have twin leaders in twin churches now. And a cousin. <laughs> and so we're all family here. Isaiah chapter 8, and we will begin reading at verse 5 and read through verse 10. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. The scripture says, the Lord also spoke to me again, saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken into pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves. But be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. May the Lord have blessings on the readers, hearers, and doers of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that you have brought us together to read your holy word, to pray, to sing songs unto you and to be ministered to by your word. We pray that you will be honored and glorified. We pray that your word will go forth and your saints will be edified, that sinners will be convicted. 
that your word will be tailor-made for everyone hearing that will speak to their situation, speak to their need. Father, we realize it's not my hour, but your hour. Not my word, but your word. Open up eyes, unstop ears, soften hearts, that your word may go out and not return void. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want you to keep your Bibles open because the scripture that I read was the third point of the message that I hope to preach. The first and second point will start in Isaiah chapter 7. And what I see within the context of Isaiah as well as the scripture that we read is the problem, the promise, and the preservation. The problem, the promise, and the preservation. As I said in the beginning, the brother explained Isaiah's call, which many Christians are familiar with, hopefully. Uh, if you've been in church a few years, you've probably heard lessons and messages taught on that great call of Isaiah. And the Lord asked him, whom shall I send who will go for me? And Isaiah said, send me, I'll go. And the Lord, right after that call and commission, sent Isaiah to King Ahaz. King Ahaz is the king of Judah. And the reason God sent Isaiah to Ahaz is because Assyria was, a, was threatening Syria and Israel. And those two got together and became allies. And when they became allies, they asked Ahaz to join them because of the threat of Assyria. Israel actually called Ephraim in chapter 7, verse 2, were allies with Syria. And when they asked Ahaz, Ahaz refused. He would not join with them in this battle or in this potential battle with the Syrians. So that made Syria, the king of Syria and the king of Ephraim, Israel, upset. And so they sent word to King Ahaz saying, we're going to take out your land, remove you as king. We're going to take you out because you want ally with us. And so when news reached the kingdom of Judah, verse 2 also says, Ahaz's heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Meaning they got news that these armies who had come together was coming to take them out. And so they were gripped with fear. They was pretty shaken up. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz by God to literally get him to listen and to calm down. Some versions have be quiet or be at peace in verse four of chapter seven. Some translations have stop worrying. Isaiah says there is no reason to fear 
And there is no reason to become faint-hearted by these threats because we have a word from the Lord. God has spoken, in other words. He has said that Syria and Ephraim will not stand, and as a matter of fact, they shall ultimately be shattered. But Ahaz heard that, but in his heart, there was something else going on. We heard in the the scripture reading where Isaiah was going to be sent to these people and they were not going to hear. They were going to reject. And so we have Ahaz here rejecting and not hearing the word of God. And although God has said this to Isaiah about these people, it still does not take away the responsibility of the ones who do not hear and reject the word of God. And so there was a little secret in Ahaz's heart and God already knowing Ahaz's heart said something to him that I believe as Christians, we need to always remember. And it's found in verse nine of chapter seven. And in the Hebrew, it's imlo ta'aminu kilo te'amenu. It's a play on words. You can hear in the Hebrew ta'aminu and te'amenu. It's a play on words which literally says, if not, you will believe. Indeed not, you will be confirmed. It was something given to him in order for it to stick with him so that he wouldn't forget. We have things like that in the English. We have play on words in the English that that sticks with us. It's easy for us to remember. One of them is when the going gets tough. You can finish it for me, can you? The tough get going, which lets us know from a worldly perspective that when the situation becomes difficult, the strong will become spirited or engaged. In times of crisis, those who are most resilient and determined will take action and prove their worth. But from the divine perspective, Ahaz was given this truth in such a way in which God, by doing it this way, impressed it upon his mind. That he would deliver him and remember to trust God. Other English Bibles try to translate it in such a way to bring out the play on words such as if in God you do not confide surely in power. You will not abide. And so we are to remember as we walk this Christian journey that in all areas of life, if we do not believe the word of God, because God has spoken. If we do not believe the word of God, surely we will not be established. Ahaz heard the word of God, but he did not apply the word of God. And that's what believing is. That's what trusting is. It's not just hearing. It's taking what you hear and actually applying it to your life. And God spoke through the prophet. He's speaking today. We have a Bible. He's speaking every Sunday. He's speaking every Wednesday. For a lot of churches and Tuesdays for others or every week, whatever day you have it. Anytime the word of God is opened and expounded truthfully. He's speaking, and it is our responsibility 
to apply that word to our lives. Yes. And if we do not do that, we shall not be established. And so Ahaz heard the word of God. He did not apply the word of God in practice because in his heart, the very country that was threatening Syria and Ephraim was the one that Ahaz wanted to turn to. Ahaz, in my mind, said, I hear what you say the Lord said, but they're coming. They're coming. And rather just sit here and not do anything, in a manner of speaking, rather just sit here and trust God. I have to do what I have to do. And so he called on Assyria, the world power of the time, hoping that maybe from them he might find deliverance from Syria and Ephraim. And so even in his unbelief, we see that God still pursues Ahaz. He, 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 he told Ahaz to request a sign from him in order that he might encourage this king who sat on the Davidic throne. He still pursues us in our unbelief. He said in verse 11 of chapter 7, ask me for a sign. I don't care how deep, I don't care how high, ask me for a sign. Whatever your mind can fathom, it seems that God goes all out in order for us to simply trust in him. Well, in spite of God's pursuit, Ahaz replied that he would not ask for a sign nor test the Lord. In other words, Ahaz, in the midst of hearing the word of God, now wants to become religious. Have you ever been religious in unbelief? People do it all the time. They come to church, which is a very religious thing. But really do not believe the word of God. So Ahaz, Mr. King of no faith, carried a secret in his heart, which meant more to him than the word of God. It was trust in the world. It was trust in Assyria. It was trust in the power of men and not in the power of God. And I'm convinced and persuaded that many Christians carry the same secret around in their hearts as well. They are willing to trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross. The work that he done for them on Calvary's cross. And they talk a good religious game. Just as Ahaz. God said, ask a sign. Ahaz said, why ask a sign from the Lord? I will not test the Lord. He says in chapter 7, verse 12. And the reason he was re being religious is he was referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It's kind of ironic because when the unbelieving try to be religious, they tend to pay attention to scriptures that they think benefit them. <laughs> but they oppose those scriptures that actually confirm what the word of God says. That's right, brother. 
Ahaz paid attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which he thought was beneficial, but he did not pay attention to 1 Samuel chapter 7. That actually confirmed what the Lord said he would do for Ahaz and the people of Judah. You will make a note of it. If you could turn to it quickly, you can. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we have the same scenario. We have the prophet Samuel. We have the children of Israel. And we have the Philistines threatening to take the children of Israel out. I'll just read it starting at verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Same scenario. You got a prophet. You got the people. You got a threat. The people become afraid. Just like in Isaiah chapter 8. But there was a different response in 1 Samuel chapter 7 than there was in Isaiah chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8 says, So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. See, their first response was to turn to the Lord. Ahaz's first response was to turn to Assyria. Mm. The text goes on to say, Samuel cried out to the Lord. And Israel was indeed delivered. They defeated the Philistines. And so in light of all I've just said, think about it. Have you ever gotten news that shook you up? That came from one direction or another? If you haven't, keep living. It's coming. What will be your first response? Will it be to cry out to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit for direction? Or will it be to trust in the world or trust in our own abilities? So Ahaz says, I will not tempt the Lord. You don't expect me to do that. I'm a religious man. I belong to a church. I belong to this denomination or that denomination. But down in his heart, he was an unbelieving man, a man who had deeper trust in Assyria than trust in God. He he had deeper trust in himself and his own strength. He had a deeper trust in his own scheming. And Christians are very much like that. They trust in their own scheming. They trust in their own activities and methods. Now, I'm not against methods as long as it doesn't violate the principles of the word of God. That's right. That's right. But man-made methods that does not trust God leads to destruction. Mm -hmm. People think they're serving God, but they do not serve God. They're really serving their own activities. They trust in their strength. They do not seek the Lord's work in man's power. And our churches are full of that. God has laid out in the Bible principles concerning the New Testament church. Patterns concerning the New Testament church. And people violate those as if it doesn't matter. But if the principles of salvation matter, which is in the same book, Mm -hmm. then everything else matters. (laughs) And we have no such right to ignore 
those things that God has to say concerning the New Testament church? Well, we have, I believe, hopefully unfolded the problem. Ahaz's problem is not Syria and Ephraim. Ahaz's problem is unbelief. Ahaz's problem is not trusting the word of God. We often think problems are outside of us. Our problems are not our enemies. Our problems is not the world. Our problems is not finances, health. Those are not our problems because God has spoken. Our problem is, and I emphasize our, (laughs) is we're not trusting what God has said. I often talk to pastors and Sometimes in the circles of pastor I talk to, it's the same problem they think they have, which is not enough money in the church. (laughs) The Saints Chapel in GCA doesn't have such such a problem, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But I often tell them my problem is not that members won't give. Our problem is we don't trust Philippians 1.19, which Paul was talking about him personally, but... It goes abroad, even applies to churches. And my God Mm -hmm. shall supply all your need according to the tithes. That's not what he said. said. According to, and I know I'm going to probably get in trouble, not here, but I have got in trouble saying this other places. According to bake sales or (laughs) according to... Some other kind of method, a program that you hang God's name on, but the main focus is the offering. That's not it, brother. No. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches. Yes, sir. Yes. In glory by Christ Jesus. Our problem in our churches that can't stand to be small. And are looking to have large numbers. Our problem is not that members are lazy and and they don't want to fulfill ministries in the church. Our problem is not lack of church growth because of our lack of wisdom or inability. Our problem is we do not trust the word of God. A well-known passage of scripture. Jesus says upon this rock, I will build my church. Yes. Not your programs, not your entertainment, not things you think that would draw people in. He says upon this rock. What was he talking about? Upon this truth that has been spoken by Peter. Upon this truth that I am the Christ. Son of the living God. This is how my church is going to be built. It's going to be based off of me and the truth that you express about me. That's how to grow. I'll add to it. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, the church was birthed after his ascension and the Holy Spirit came down. And after he rose, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, it says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. 
And he gave gifts to men. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And here's the key for the equipping of the saints. Mm -hmm. For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Therefore, a lack of church growth is due to a de-emphasis on the word of God. Mm. On the true teaching of God's word, because that is the only thing that equips the saints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It equips the saints for the work of ministry. A lack of church growth is a failure to trust God, the Holy Spirit. To raise up men and women through the preaching and teaching of the word of God for the work of ministries in the church. It is a known fact that when the word of God is taught and preached properly, mm -hmm. the saints are equipped and ministries flourish. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Which means you don't have to go and beg somebody to be over this ministry. Because when a man asks, then they do it based on their feelings. If they feel like it one morning, they'll be on time. If they don't, they'll be late or that ministry won't go forth on that particular Sunday, whatever it may be. But when the Holy Spirit leads someone, because they have been equipped, when the Holy Spirit gives them that burning desire, to serve the church in some capacity, then you almost, in a manner of speaking, have to hold them back mm -hmm. from wanting to do so much. Mm. Kind of like that problem Moses had when they was going to build a tabernacle, right? He said, give. The Holy Spirit laid it upon their hearts to give. And, and I don't even believe he said give. He just said, this is what we're going to do. And the people went to giving, and Moses had to stop them from giving. Mm. They was giving so much. Now, every pastor would love to have that problem with him. <laughs> I wonder would we have the spirit of Moses hey you're giving too much but God has spoken in his word and these are the ways in which we are to be established we, we are to believe his word and we are not to resort to man made methods and Worldly Amen. principles. Yes, sir. Well, getting back to our story, Ahaz's lack of faith, even when God asked him for a sign and he says, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to test the Lord. It didn't stop the promise of God to those who believe. God was disturbed over the lack of faith that Ahaz expressed because he stood on the Davidic line and should have had that faith. But he gave those who believed in him a promise. Mm -hmm. We now move into the promise. The great prophecy of the virgin born son in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. In other words, God said, Ahaz asked me for a sign. I don't care how deep, I don't care how high. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. God said, I'm going to give you one anyway. <laughs> I'm going to give you and those who believe, all the land of Judah, the house of David, a sign. And your sign, Ahaz, if you would have requested it, would have been a natural sign. It could have only gone as deep as your imagination or as high as your imagination. But now that I'm going to give you a sign, it's going to be a supernatural one. 
And so verse 14 of chapter seven says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I don't know if you've heard, but some try to downplay the virgin birth, downplay it so that they don't believe it. And I can understand why naturally, (laughs) if you don't believe it, because virgin conception, that just that doesn't go together without. A human father, we know naturally there is no way that a woman can conceive. And so many will say the important thing is not so much the virgin birth, but the person of Christ. It kind of disturbs me sometimes how people try to use Christ to defeat another doctrine that is about Christ in the Bible. Because they say, oh, how can you argue with that? That the person of Christ is the most important thing. I believe the level of importance does not rest either on the virgin birth or the person of Christ, but both on the virgin birth and the person of Christ. Notice that the sign is not just given to Ahaz. It's not just given to Isaiah. It's given to the house of David. It had long been established from the Davidic covenant back again in, in, in first or second Samuel. It had long been established that the Messiah would come through the Davidic line. Now, since that establishment, we have detail given surrounding the birth of the Messiah of the king. The birth of the Messiah would would, would surround this virgin conception, this supernatural thing. And furthermore, identification is given as to who exactly this Messiah is. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing promise. Ahaz wouldn't give a sign, but God did. And it was for those who would trust him. The Messiah King would come from the Davidic line and when he is born, there would be no doubt. There would be no question that he has come because he would be conceived and born of a virgin. You think when this prophecy was spoken and and, and people heard it, it didn't raise their eyebrows? A virgin? Conceive it? If they truly believe what God said. Not only that, this is the event surrounding his coming. But when he comes, when he comes out of the womb of the virgin, his identification that tells exactly who he is, is Emmanuel. That is God. That is very God a very God. That is Yahweh. That is Jehovah who would be in their midst. He would be the God child that would grow to be the God man. Yes, yes. And so there's a lot more I can say, but I'll just bring this point out. If we don't have a virgin birth, there's no way we can have a divine savior. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's the most important thing. If Jesus, Father, is human, he also possesses the sin nature. Therefore, he could not be our savior. That's why the virgin birth is is so important. Well, as we move on to 
Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, it's clear that judgment is coming upon the land, and he gives the reasons why, starting in verse 5. Isaiah says in verses 5 and 6, the Lord spoke also to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flowed softly, and the people, in my translation and in many translations, it has rejoiced, but I encourage you to pick up other translations. Because I believe contextually, this Hebrew word means to lose courage. It means to melt or become weakened. And we've seen in chapter 7, verse 2, that when the children of Israel and Ahaz heard of the threats, they were moved as trees in the woods are moved by the wind. They became shaken. They became Afraid. And so they melted or weakened down as a result of fear because of their enemy's threats. And because of this fear, Isaiah is saying judgment is coming upon you, not solely because of the fear, but because this fear has led you to refuse mm -hmm. the waters of Shiloh. Verse 7 of chapter 8 says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings upon them the waters of the rivers, that is the Euphrates, strong and mighty. He's talking about the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. What is Isaiah talking about? Prophets, we must understand, sometimes speaks in figurative language. He says these people of Judah have refused to walk the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. What does he mean by that? He means by that that the waters of Shiloh were gentle and literally being sent. You refused the waters being sent. What do you mean? That water literally sent softly illustrates the gentle, redemptive message of the Lord God of Israel. The message that I sent was through the sign that a child would come that would take care of everything. We notice a lot of babies, <laughs> even in church. And it's a good thing. They're sweet and gentle and soft. And, and this message, this sign that God gave them is that a child is going to be born through the womb of a virgin. And he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. But you have refused that. And because you have refused that, gentle, soft, flowing river, I'm going to send a mighty river upon you. And that mighty river. Illustrated by the Euphrates is the king of Assyria. Do you not know we have the same message today? We have a gentle redemptive message. Of the savior. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek. I am gentle yes. and lowly yes. in heart. Yes. Yes. And you shall find rest 
unto your souls. He's saying, come to me. I'm the gentle savior. I'm the meek and merciful savior. I'm the gracious savior. And if you refuse that, then there's another river that shall come up on those who refuse that, namely the lake of fire. And so it's the same message. That's the message to the world. That's the message to to all the little stream. But there is a new testament connection to these waters of Shaloa found here in the eighth chapter. Again, it means the one sent. And you remember in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, chapter nine, verse seven, when our Lord healed the blind man, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's the same one he's talking about in Isaiah eight. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And in John chapter nine, in parentheses, it says, which is translated sent. So the blind man went and washed and came back seeing. These are connected and there's something typical about it. There's something illustrative about the waters of Shiloh here and the pool of Siloam in the New Testament. First of all, Isaiah is reminded by the waters of Shiloh that what he was doing was an example in the physical realm of what Jesus Christ would do in the in the spiritual realm. Because Jesus Christ is the sent one. He prophesied of of the child. He prophesied in figurative language of the waters of Shiloh. And so Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the sent one of God. Jesus, by sending the blind man to the pool of Siloam, when his physical eyes was healed, was a message to all Israel and those now that were here. That what he did, what the sent one did to this man physically in opening his eyes. He would do spiritually to the blinded eyes my Lord, my Lord. when one turns to him. Mm-hmm. And so the Israelites of Isaiah days refused The waters of Shiloh, the waters concerning the sent one that flows softly. Unbelievers still today refuse that gentle savior, that that gentle redemptive message of the savior, uh, the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And since this was the case, Ahaz and many Israelites in the land now must anticipate judgment. The Assyrian invader, they must anticipate this river now. But there's good news for believers. The land would be overtaken, but Judah would barely escape. Mm -hmm. Notice the eighth verse of the eighth chapter. And he shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. Can you get a picture of a flood? Rising water. And someone's caught in the flood and. The water goes all the way up to the neck. (laughs) That means the most important part is preserved. They won't be totally wiped out. They won't drown. And so what God is saying here is the land is going to be overtaken. But not totally. Because I have a remnant. It's going to reach even up to the neck. Judah is going to be preserved because they have a promise that it is from their tribe that the king shall come. Judah is going to be preserved because only a remnant in Judah 
which is needed will ultimately lead to Jesus Christ. In the meantime, they must suffer great judgment. But the good news is God has not cast his people away. He has not cast his people away. The darkness, Isaiah will point out in chapter 9, verse 2, will turn to light in the coming of the child. And in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9, the coming of the son will seize the reins of world government and inaugurate everlasting peace. That's the reason he's called the Prince of Peace. That's something that we're still waiting on. The Prince of Peace to, to inaugurate everlasting peace. My Lord. Which should teach us that no president will ever bring in everlasting peace. That's right. That's right. No prime minister, no, no dictator, no world leader will ever bring in everlasting peace. The Christian hope is the Prince of Peace. Right. We know that when he comes, yes. everlasting peace will be brought in. Yes. This is the Savior long foretold to usher in the age of gold. It is Jesus Christ and it is only Jesus Christ. So let us not refuse those, those gentle waters. I urge you, those who have not received Jesus Christ, let us receive, let us believe, let us trust that Jesus Christ, that gentle Savior, has done it all for us. But here... Look at verse 8 again. Judah is going to be overtaken. He says he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings. In other words, he's talking about the Assyrian spreading out their army all over the land. It says will be the fullness of the breath. But this is what excites me. He says your land, O Emmanuel. The Syrian army is coming swiftly and like a flood, and it's going to overtake this entire land except the part that God has preserved. Mm-hmm. They're going to invade the whole land, every city, every town, except Jerusalem. And when you look at the last two clauses of verse 8, the prophet is reminded that this land, which was about to be fully invaded up to Jerusalem, still belonged to the Lord. It still belonged to the Lord and it was still under his protection. Although the land will be full of enemies and they will spread to every part and endanger all, yet he was given a name. A name that had been given according to the promises and the signs in chapter 7. He had been given a name surrounding the circumstances of the virgin birth and it would remind the prophet and the king Notwithstanding this invasion, the land would still be under the protection of God and God would still be with the land. Yes. Yes. Now I'm going somewhere with this. (laughs) By calling the land your land or his land, it assured those believers that the land could not be brought to utter desolation. Nor could the country where the Messiah was to be born be wasted in ruin. It would indeed be invaded. The armies of Assyria would spread over it. But still it was the land of Emmanuel. It was the Lord's land and the Lord would continue to be with it. 
I have no doubt that the purpose of God was to fix the mind of the prophet on the fact that the Messiah must come and the assurance that the land could not be wholly and permanently abandoned uh, was given to him. In other words, God shall not cast away his people. And that's what's so good about the promises of God. That's what's so good about the word of God. God is bound to what he says. Yes, yes, yes. And it doesn't matter what appears or what may look like what in our lives, no matter what circumstance or situation come up. If he has spoken and he has promised, if he has said it, we can hold him to. And that's what Judah could do. Okay, we're under judgment. It's going to be overtaken, but not all of it because he's promised us something. So there is always the remnant. Well, hopefully we've unfolded the problem, which is unbelief, not trusting in God's word. We've seen the graciousness of God's promise, and we've been assured of the preservation of those who believe. Now, I find further illustration when we talk about the invasion of the land, the sin of Ahaz. You know, we had a problem. The sin of Adam. And the sin of Adam caused the judgment of God to come upon the whole human race. But there was also a preservation because God chose before time, even before Adam sinned, that there would be a certain amount, a number that we can't number, that would be preserved. And so I see in, in this story an illustration of the fact that Adam fell and through God's redemptive plan, judgment, eternal judgment, had come upon mankind but up to the neck because he still had chosen those who would be preserved. And then there was a promise given to Adam of a seed that will come. And crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. That promise is for believers. It's for the remnant that although we are in this body and under the judgment. Mm -hmm. Judgment was twofold, physical death and eternal death. When we believed in God, that wiped away the eternal death, but it didn't wipe away the physical death. Mm. And so although we're still up under this judgment, we have a promise. All right. That the seed is coming that will take care of everything. Just as Judah and Ahaz was given a promise that the child is coming to take care of everything. And isn't it sweet that when we believe in this promise, when we believe in him who the promise is about, we are preserved. Mm -hmm. I believe in Ephesians chapter one. It says after believing. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. He has sealed us so we are forever preserved. I'm sealed. My eternal destiny is secure. Well, that's on the one hand, but then there's the Christian journey. And while on this Christian journey, we must remember that difficulties will definitely come our way. Whether it be health, whether it be finances, or as James says, various trials. They're coming. Yeah, they're coming. Yes. Some of us are already in them. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Some of us have been through some difficulties. Yes. Awaiting the next difficulty. Yes. Yeah. It's an ongoing thing. Yes. This Christian journey is going to bring difficulty. Some have to go through more than others. But rest assure you, difficulties is going to be part of the Christian journey from start to finish. Mm-hmm. But we take courage from the word of God. And I especially take courage from Job, the story of Job. Job trusted in God and, and he let his friends know. In a manner of speaking, the devil is not my problem. The loss Of all my riches is not my problem. Mm -hmm. The loss of all my health is not the problem. Job says, I'm trusting in God. He said it so that in Job 13, I believe 15, he says when he was probably at his lowest health wise, though he slay me. Yes. Though he slay me. Yes. I'm still going to trust him. And maybe as Christians, we struggle often too long because we want what we want. And not willing to say, "Okay, God, you have ordained it. You have put me here, not the devil. Because if you wouldn't have had allowed the devil to touch my body, it never would have been touched. Mm. I ultimately look to you. Yes, yes. And if I have to go through, since I have to go through, if this is your way of getting glory, if this is your way of even calling me home, though you slay me. Yes, still, still gonna trust. I'm still going to trust in yes, you. Yes. So let us not lose courage when news come, when difficulties come. Let us not lose courage. It's easy For someone to say, let us not lose courage when they're not in that position, right? But as a preacher, Mm -hmm. as a proclaimer of the word of God, it's not me saying it, it's God saying it. Mm -hmm. Don't lose courage. Don't melt down or weaken down at trouble or difficulties. We are housed in this flesh. Let us trust the word of God. You know, the world and even professing Christians. And maybe some possessing Christians cling to life. Mm. Death is such a grip. It's such a truth. It's such a fact that we try to avoid. We don't like to plan. Some of us, I'm not going to put everybody in the category. Some of us don't like to plan for funerals. Some of us don't like to do wheels. Some of us don't like to prepare for death because we don't even want to go there. We cling so to life. Well, there's a word for us there. Paul, probably outside of Christ, suffered and faced death before he actually died more than anybody. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. He's talking about death. Mm-hmm. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Amen. Which means if we're thinking too much about how to stay alive, then our focus is not where it needs to be. Mm. We're not focusing, really believing Really trusting that we have a building from God. Mm -hmm. 
a house not made with hands, eternal into heavens. Eternal in the heavens. Speaking of Job, he felt the same way Mm -hmm. concerning death. Who was properly, he felt like near death more than anybody had ever been, at least in his time. Job 19 verses 25 through 27 says, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh. I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. And so it, 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 it ought to be a lesson to all of us that when the situation becomes so severe that we feel like it's over. Let's think about the promises of God because that's far better. That's far better. Sin overtakes our bodies, diseases, all type of things overtakes our bodies. Mm -hmm. But what I get from this lesson is it may overtake me. Even sins that I bring up on myself. I'm a wretch, oh Lord. Isaiah said it. I'm ruined. I'm a wretch. Mm -hmm. But guess what? I'm yours. Yours. That's right. I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. Mm -hmm. Everything I got. Yes. Everything I am and everything I'm not. A songwriter wrote that. I'm yours, Lord. I don't pray like I I, I should. I probably do wrong more than I do right. But I'm yours. I'm yours. And nothing can overtake me. Sin cannot overtake me. My mistakes cannot overtake me. Diseases cannot overtake me. Nothing in this world or within this body can overtake me and touch that part that you have preserved. God gave the devil leeway to touch everything Job had except his soul. Mm -hmm. He couldn't touch it. And that ought to assure us. And so maybe there's someone listening who's not part of the remnant today. The church of Jesus Christ is the true remnant. Mm -hmm. We are the people of God. If you truly believe in Christ, you're going to become insignificant in the world's eyesight. Anybody ever been walking in the store or down the street or something and and somebody say, there goes the child of the king? (laughs) Not unless your members here and they know you. They may make some reference to that. But the world's not going to do that. There's the child of the king. No, they say there's that fanatic. They go to that (laughs) church that believe that grace stuff. (laughs) We're not significant in the world. And although we're not significant, God still has us. He's not cast away his people. Well, finally, in verses 9 and 10, as I finish, Isaiah had a sense of humor. He begins to taunt the enemies of God. He says, Starting at verse 9, be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand for or because. You know the reason all of your things that you're trying to do is not going to work? Look at that. Because God is with us. The reason it's not going to work is because of Emmanuel, Isaiah is saying. That's the reason it's not going to work. It should teach us that worldly policy 
desolates the land of God. Worldly policies will destroy the local churches of Jesus Christ. We don't cling to worldly policies. God often brings difficulties on us in various forms. Some of them, if not many, is due to our own sinfulness. Therefore, we come under discipline. We come under discipline in order for God to get us to turn or teach us that we can't get away with the things that we do. But sometimes difficulties come that we may learn to trust him. That we may learn to trust him. Helen McClarty knows much about the condition of my mother. And this, this section of scripture really encouraged me because from what I can tell, and I emphasize I because I don't know the mind of God, it appears that my mother is leaving us. And it breaks my heart to even go visit her to see her in the state and condition she's in. She's bedridden. And again, I have difficulties because I want what I want. Mm -hmm. I want her to be mama again, to sit and talk and carry on with me and to laugh and do all the things that she did before she got in that state. But often we don't realize that God knows what's best, Mm -hmm. even when it hurts us the most. But what I like about it, the hurt is not a permanent hurt. The hurt is something that we will later rejoice in. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. I thought about her when I I thought about diseases and various things overtaking her body. So many things wrong that I care not to even name them. But then right before I came here, when I made the trip, I went by. And a lot of times she won't even respond. But then I leaned down and I said, Mama, you want to pray? And then I thought about that part that the diseases and everything couldn't touch. She says, yeah. She says, yeah. And as I begin to pray, that part of her that can't be touched, I hear it come out. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Oh, Lord. Yes. She responds to that when... When I read scripture, she responds to it. When, when I play music that yeah. talks about Jesus, one of, her, one of her favorite songs is, Jesus, you've been good to me. Mm-hmm. And she hears that song. She don't move a lot of times, but when she hears that song, I can see her feet yeah. patting a little yeah. bit. That's that part that can't be touched. That's right, that's right. And so it ought to encourage all of us. It ought to encourage all of us, no matter what we go through. There's a part of us that is in the hands of the Lord mm-hmm. that cannot be touched. Thank you. Yes, sir.